So we're still talking to Dr. Tulian, and um, this will be the last one on him, and then we'll move on to some other things. But I think we'll, we'll get through the main points that I really think are valuable that um, I think give us some really good takeaways for our understanding of church history and um, our understanding of the gospel throughout history. So, um, we talked about Tertullian in the first week. We basically just gave an introduction of who he is, um, kind of a little bit about his career, his lifestyle, what he was known for, a little bit of his reputation. To, uh, last week, we talked about, especially about his gospel, and we discussed how his gospel, starting out, he said a lot of good things. But then later on, he started to say some things that were really concerning, and uh, we begin to wonder whether he understands the gospel of justification by faith, or if for him it's part, partly making a deal with God by um, sort of paying off debt or, or doing good works in part to meet God halfway. Turning to your Bibles real quick, I just want to give you the verse for today. Um, turn to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 17. Galatians 3 17. This is going to be our verse for today as we our last time we take our last lesson on Tertullian. Paul says, And this I say that the law, which is 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. Okay, so with that in mind, let's go ahead and before we'll come back and revisit that. Again. Uh, in the course of today's lesson. First of all, I want to do a little bit of review about stuff that we've learned before uh, in this class on church history. So I want to go back to remind you about the Easter, what I call the <coughs> Easter Rebellion. That's my special name for it. If you say that somewhere else, no one will know what you're talking about, but I think we talked about something else. Um, probably the correct name is the Possible Controversy. It was a little-known or at least often overlooked drama in, in the late 2nd century church. And uh, it's often overlooked because it seems a bit insignificant to us now. It seems a little insignificant in the grand scheme of history. But in its own time, it was a big deal. It was uh, such a big deal. In fact, the bishop of Rome at that time, he actually recommended the wholesale excommunication of the churches of Asia Minor as a result of this controversy. Fortunately, as we learned, there were cooler heads at that time. They, they prevailed over him, and, uh, and that didn't happen. Uh, but nonetheless, there were still some people who were like, yeah, you know, we're going to agree to disagree right now, but gee, if some of those guys aren't keeping doing this right, um, they might be in trouble. And quite simply, that controversy, if you don't remember it, it was about how to correctly, quote-unquote, correctly memorialize the death and resurrection of our Lord. In Judaism, of course, the chief holiday is the Passover, and it has a prophetic connection to the work of Christ. Now, the second century church recognized that prophetic connection. They, don't, not, they weren't Jewish predominantly. They didn't keep the Passover like Jews did, but they recognized its prophetic significance, so they had a celebration. And so what emerges in the second century is this Judeo-Christian practice of observing an annual time corresponding to the Jewish Passover, in which they remember, commemorate, celebrate Christ's death and resurrection. Of course, it culminates in Resurrection Sunday. 
at least as early as the second century, Christians, we know, were keeping this uh, a, a sort of fast preceding Resurrection Sunday. And what the exact point of disagreement was on was this question. What day do you end that fast? We're coming up on Easter. We're all kind of, the whole church around the whole Roman Empire is fasting in a time of remembrance of Christ's suffering. What day do you end that fast? And some people said, oh, it's this day. The rest of the church said, oh, no, it's this day. And they had a big fight over it. Okay. And again, as I said, it didn't create a schism at the time. Okay, so there's the first thing I want to remind you of. After I told you about them, and put, just put a bookmark there. The next thing I want to remind you of, by way of review, is what we visited before, the heresy or um, sect, extreme, of Montanism. Uh, so let me just ask you guys, what was Montanism about? What, what did Montanism believe? Say what? Originating a mountain. No. Well, it was. Who's a mountainous one? Mountainous was the name of the guy. Okay. Yeah. Wasn't it like something about like, um, like matter? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Matter is, you're thinking of the Gnostics. Okay. Uh, okay. I'll give you a hand. It had to do with um, uh, spiritual gifts. Oh. The main thing that he did. So they believe in like uh, extra revelation, right? Yeah, new prophecy. New prophecy. New prophecy yeah. is what they call it. Um, <coughs> some other distinctives. Can you remember what they did, uh, reminded you it's about prophecy? What was other? What were some of the other things that the Montanists believe? Um, it's too long ago. Were they not kind of Gnostic a little bit? No, actually, no. they weren't. They yeah, weren't Gnostic. Some of them, one of you said really well. To my knowledge, I don't know if any real Gnosticism. Um, they had a weird eschatology. Um, they believed if you were a widow, you can't remarry. You just get one marriage in life. If your spouse dies, then to remarry, according to them. It's polygamy if you remarry. And they also had a strict rule about fasting. That was kind of a big deal. So the, the Montanist groups, I mean, all Christians fasted back then. As we see, they had an argument in the second century about fasting. Um, but the Montanist groups prescribed fasts for their followers. They would basically tell you how and when to fast. And if you were a good Christian in the Montanist way of thinking, you would have to do it. You'd have to fast that way. And this kind of set them apart from the rest of the churches, among a number of things. This was one of the big points of controversy. Um, we've dealt with prophecy already. We've talked about that. We've talked a little bit about their weird eschatology. Uh, just mentioned um, their, their whole idea about remarriage for widows. But uh, today we're probably going to come back and revisit the idea of fasting, how they kind of handle it. So this brings us back to Tertullian. So as I mentioned last week, Tertullian, early on in his uh, sort of church life, his, his his career as a churchman and church writer, he became a Montanist, and from there he kind of proceeded on to various, especially Montanistic extremes. So he kind of embraced everything that Montanism was about, maybe even took it a little bit further. He was an extreme guy. He was a very controversial 
tended to be a little bombastic like that. So as a Montanist, Tertullian, he wrote a little book called On Fasting. And effectively what that book does is it attempts to present and defend the Montanistic doctrine and practice of fasting. It's, it kind of looks up front on the title, it kind of looks like it's a theological work on fasting, but really it reads a, a lot like an ideological or almost political tract. Because he's very conscious, he's very self-conscious of this of the fact that he's a Montanist, the Montanists are different from the rest of the church, and he's here to tell you that he and the Montanists really get fasting right. I just want to get into this a little bit because although really today's class isn't about fasting, um, even though we just had Thanksgiving, um, <laughs> even though Tertullian does associate gluttony with as a, as a reason for fasting, fasting is an antidote for it. Um, that's really not what we're getting into today. By the way, he would not approve of most of y'all's Thanksgiving celebrations, I think. Uh, he's a pretty strict guy. But um, there's a bigger picture that I'm going to get to that this, I think, helps illustrate um, for, uh, for what's going on in church history at this time. Now, uh, here's some, just some words from, Ma, from Tertullian himself from this little book on fasting. That kind of describe a little bit how Montanists proceed fasting. He, he describes that as this, prolonging our stations generally into the evening. Stations in the early church were set days for fasting. The whole church seemed to observe it at that time. Observing xerophagy, xerophagy is what's called eating dry food, basically. Keeping our food unmoistened by any flesh and by any juiciness and by any kind of special succulent fruit. Not eating or drinking anything with a whiny flavor and abstinence from... The, the bath congruent with our diet. So it's a very strict um, <clears throat> uh, way, uh, method of fasting. It's even a little bit ascetic, as you can see. And uh, of course, as I mentioned, all Christians back then did fast. It was a common practice. And maybe it even been on a regular weekly bath basis for most Christians. Um, the Montanists, however, they observed fast more strictly and maybe more frequently than non-Montanists. <laughs> And when not fasting, it seems like they may have had a, a very, you know, kept a very strict ascetic diet. Now, even so, these things uh, about Montanists don't really, aren't really the main cause of offense. It's not what the rest of the church is getting upset about. Uh, so what was it that made, you know, the Montanists uh, controversial? Well, Tertullian kind of underlines it in his book. Um, he really, you know, uh, he highlights where the exact point of disagreement is. He says this. He's describing non-Montanists, who he doesn't like, who he doesn't disagree with. He says this. They think that fasting was to be indifferently observed by the new discipline of choice, not a command, according to the times and needs of each individual. So generally speaking, the church's doctrinal position at this time, early 3rd century, is this. It's... it's uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a matter of freedom. We should all fast, but, you know, it's not really obligatory. The Montanists, on the other hand, they, they prescribe it. They give the commands, and everyone's supposed to keep it according to them. They prescribe uh, fast, obligatory fasts on a set schedule. And because of this, the, the church is getting upset at them, and the church has an accusation. What does the church say? They say to the Montanists, you guys are committing the error of the Galatians. You are observers of seasons and days and months and years. That comes from Galatians 4.10. So that's the accusation the church is aiming at Tertullian and his buddies in the Montanist circles. 
Now, most of really Tertullian's book, most of it is really aimed at responding to this specific argument. Uh, he gets he, he attempts some biblical arguments to support his version of fasting, but none of them are really that good. Um, I don't think so, anyways. Uh, he fires some shots, rhetorical shots at non-Montanists. He calls them. He says they're gluttonous. They're, they're drinking too much, etc. Um, but really, his real argument hinges and, and swirls around responding to this this accusation of, that they're like the Galatians. They're observing months and days and, and seasons and years, etc. And uh, I found that probably his best summary statements of what he's getting at come at the end of the book. And he says he says this there. He's uh, the again. Remember, the church has accused him of being like the Galatians, accused the Montanists of being legalistic. And he says this in response. He says plainly, we do, if we are observers of Jewish ceremonies of legal solemnities. He says if we were keeping the Jewish law, we would be like the Galatians. He says, but it's not what we're doing. He says, if there is, a, he makes this argument specifically. He says, if there is a new creation in Christ, that's what we believe, right? As Christians, a new creation in Christ. He says, therefore, our solemnities, Christian solemnities too, <coughs> will be bound to be new. So Tertullian's argument number one in response to the accusation of legalism is this. In Christ, supposedly, God replaced the old law with a new law. In other words, we're not like the Galatians because we, the Montanists, are not like the Galatians because the Galatians were trying to keep the Jewish law, but we are keeping a new law that was instituted with Christ. That's his argument number one. He goes on. There's another argument, another big piece of his argument. And he says this. If the apostle, he's talking about Paul in Galatians, if the apostle has erased all devotion absolutely of seasons and days and months and years... Why do we celebrate the Passover by annual rotation? Why in the 50 ensuing days do we spend our time in exaltation? Why do we devote to stations the fourth and sixth days of the week? It's a common practice back at that time in the church. People would fast for part of the day on Wednesday and Friday. Not very common. He's saying, why do we do all that? What's his second argument? Uh, Tertullian's argument number two is... You guys, the rest of the church who aren't Montanists, you guys have a double standard because you also prescribe days and months and years. Just not as strictly as we Montanists do. We're just taking it further. That's his argument number two. Any questions? So with that said, I want to move on to what's what's the big point today. So again, as I mentioned, the object of today's class is, is really not to discuss uh, a theology of fasting. That's a valuable thing. Uh, definitely, you could spend a, a, a church Bible clipping hour on that sometime. It wouldn't be a bad idea. It's not about getting into the sin of gluttony. That's something never gets preached on in our culture. But, you know, it's in there. I think Tertullian was extreme. We could probably talk about that sometime, but we're not getting into that today either. There's a bigger picture a much more important picture. It's much more important in relation to church history as a whole, and especially with respect to the gospel. And I think that this little feud that Tertullian is having with the rest of the church really helps us kind of see that bigger picture, understand what's going on. Um, obviously, if you haven't caught on yet, I don't agree with Tertullian at all. 
on this play. But his, his arguments, his two arguments that I just told you for you there, those really reveal some, some things that I think are valuable takeaways for us. So let me deal with the second argument first. He says this, and again, he said in the second argument, basically he's saying, he's charging the, the church of the third century with a double standard. He's saying, you're calling us Galatians because we prescribe days for fasting. Uh, however, aren't all Christians doing that? Aren't you guys also prescribing days for fasting? Isn't that an essential part of our faith? That's his argument number two. Now, he's correct in part on that argument. At least he's correct about the fact that the church does have a double standard at this stage in history. We just watched how at the end of the second century, the church had a big fight about fasting. They were getting confused. They were missing things. They were preoccupied with stuff that really isn't what the gospel is about. <clears throat> they did avert open conflict at the time, but even while they averted open conflict, many people still believed that, you know, if you don't do it right, your soul's in trouble. You don't fast in the right way. At the beginning of Tertullian's book on fasting, he summarizes the church's doctrine on fasting, uh, a doctrine that he disagrees with. And I actually like that part of the book best because I thought that was the best doctrinal stuff in the book. Um, it's actually pretty good. It, it, the, the church's doctrine, the non-Montanist church's doctrine on fasting at the time was basically it maintained the value of fasting while also preserving Christian liberty, individual choice. Unfortunately, however, the church's doctrine at this time wasn't entirely consistent with what was being openly practiced. They were prescribing fasts. Um, and so there's this mis mixed message for the whole church that is beginning to cloud the meaning and, and the, of, the, of the gospel. It's beginning to get people confused. Now there's nothing wrong, I want to say here very clear, there's nothing wrong with common practical traditions. And what I mean by common practical traditions is the fact that there are common practices that become repetitive, become traditional, which are going to exist wherever you are in the church. It's unavoidable. Um, you can't call people out of a pagan culture and then just leave them with nothing. You're going to have practical traditions. The fact that we meet on Sunday, that's a practical tradition. Uh, that's not a problem. Um, in fact, sometimes it's, it's, you have to have some of those things just for the sake of you know, order and edification. The problem comes when we start to treat those common practices as though they are religious observances, that there's something essential, uh, spiritual value that we will either miss if we don't do it or gain if we do do it. We basically, in a word, we start to treat these traditions as though they are scriptural commands. That's when we get into trouble. So the church in Tertullian's time, it's speaking the right doctrine out of one side of their mouth, especially when it comes to confronting the Montanists who they don't like on the subject of fasting, but at the same time it's holding another standard when it's telling its, its followers, oh, on, on this day you do that, on this day you do that, etc., etc., and making, creating rules uh, for common um, observance. People are beginning to be confused as a result of this. People are beginning to be confused about what is essentially our <coughs> faith and what isn't. And ultimately, that affects the faithful teaching of the gospel. Move on to argument number one of Tertullian's. He says that 
they, the Montanists, he and the other Montanists, would only be like the Galatians if they enforced Jewish ceremonial law. But they're not committing that error because they're enforcing a new ceremonial law. I'll, I'll read another quote by him. He says, the apostle, Paul, is, quote, suppressing the continuance of the Old Testament, which has been buried in Christ, and establishing that of the new. What he means by that is the gospel is this. God took away the Old Testament law and gave us a new law with new works and new ceremony whereby we are to be justified if we follow these things and are in favor of God. And in fact, Tertullian does tie fasting in. He does connect it in some way, his version of fasting, to being justified with God. He says in chapter 3 of his little book here, he says that Adam's original sin was eating something he wasn't supposed to eat, and that's to be expiated in fasting. He says this, quote, man may make God's satisfaction through the self-same causative material through which he had offended. Um, let's take a moment here and say, that's ridiculous. Uh, God says, puts you in the garden, he says, you can't eat freely, whatever you want to eat, but that one fruit, don't eat that. And then what do we do? We go and we eat it. And now we say, okay, God, I'm going to make it up to you. Every Wednesday, I won't eat from now on. No, that doesn't make up, make up for rebellion. That doesn't make up for high treason against the creator. Um, it's just a ridiculous argument. But as we've seen, this is kind of consistent with uh, what we've seen of Tertullian's gospel. There's this concept that in some way, somehow, man gets right with God by paying off debt through penance. And of course we know that to be wrong. Look back at uh, Galatians, uh, the verse we started with today, Galatians 3.17. Tell you why this is wrong. There's a lot of good reasons why his take on Paul and how Paul treats the law is, is, is off. Tertullian is off. Um, one of the classic arguments when people read Galatians or whether they read uh, when they read Romans, if they want to deny what Paul is saying, a classic argument is effectively what Tertullian is, is, is arguing. He's saying, well, God's you know, justification is not by the Mosaic law, so God's just removing the Mosaic law, but he's giving us a new law whereby we justify. That is a very classic error. And it's wrong for dozens of reasons. Um, very grateful to George taking us through Galatians, Galatians, the book, and showing us how, in the context, and in light of all that Paul says, it's really, uh, it's kind of an impossible interpretation unless you're committed to reading it that way. It doesn't make sense. Um, at the risk of stealing a little bit of George's fire, I wanted to look at chapter 3 today and just give you one more reason, one more reason why this doesn't work. Our verse today is 317, chapter 3, verse 17, it said, Paul said um, this, that, he says, the law, which was 430 years later, cannot know the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that the promise should be of no effect. He's referring back to the fact that he mentioned earlier that Abraham believed the promise, and because of believing that promise, he was justified. And then later on came the law. And if we believe that same promise, we, like Abraham, are justified. So you can't, what Paul's saying is, you can't bring this, God's not going to bring a law 430 years later and say, oh, I need to add some conditions to that promise. That's not how God works. 
So that's why the Mosaic law doesn't justify us. Well, let me ask you this. Take a law more than two millennia that comes with Christ, more than two millennia after Abraham. Can that law justify us? Is that law going to know the original promise of God? No, it can't. And so that whole argument falls to pieces. And you'll hear it from Napoleon, you'll hear it from a lot of other people. Um, the point of all this is a point I've been trying to drive at that the church at this time, you've got the extremists like Tertullian who are going down this rather concerning road of error. But even if you say, okay, they're extremists, let's not get in the same boat with them, let's not be Montanists. Even if you have those, even if you say that, you need to recognize that the church has its own errors at this time that are kind of feeding that direction. And as a result, the church is starting to affirm more and more error that offends the teaching of the gospel. Many uh, weeks ago, I think it was very early on in this class, I introduced you guys to a people group who received the gospel in the early 20th century for the first time. Today, they're 50% professing Christian. It was only a century ago. Only, literally, it's like the 1920s, I think. And uh, we know the people who preach the gospel to them. We have their writings. We have their journals and their letters. We know what they believe and what they taught. They taught the gospel of justification by grace through faith. And yet, now, only generations later, that same people group, a huge portion of them are preoccupied with observances of days and months and years and not eating this or not touching that, and so on, and they forgot the gospel. They don't understand why Jesus died on the cross if you asked him. That's a fact. Only one century. The whole point, then, is that this is a battle the church faces. It faced it from the earliest times, from its earliest history, and it faces it again and again throughout history. So Tertullian, I'm, we should, I'm grateful to Tertullian, although I disagree strongly with him on some really big stuff, I'm very grateful to him because I think his extremism helps expose the flaws of the time in the, in the church at that time and the danger, and the reasons why those flaws exist, the dangers that the church is perpetually confronted with.